When we ended chapter 2 last week, Peter had just finished informing his Christian readers how to live exemplary lives as citizens and as workers slash servants. He was talking to his readers, he was talking to us, let us know how to properly conduct ourselves, how to have a godly submission towards those in authority. He shared with them the importance of submitting to those in authority and gave them practical ways to conduct themselves towards them. If they were to experience unjust suffering for doing what was right, he hoped they'd look to Jesus as the ultimate example of a suffering servant in order to find strength and comfort. So as we go, as we begin this next chapter, Peter will continue to urge them how to live holy lives. Again, last week we covered, there was four groups he was speaking to, uh, or four aspects of being obedient Christians, being obedient as citizens, being obedient as workers. Um, this week, um, he's going to focus on um, being obedient and faithful Christian wives and husbands. This morning's message will primarily deal with how Christians ought to honor their spouses if those spouses are unbelievers. But a lot of it also applies to marriages where both husband and wives are Christians as well. So if you're married, I hope that it changes or strengthens your role and responsibility as a born-again Christian, as a born-again Christian wife or husband, so that you have a marriage that honors God. If you're single, if you're not married, there's a message for you here too. Um, you know, someone made a comment saying, oh, it's not for me, I'm not married. Well, again, I, I believe that regardless of where you open up the Word of God, you know, he want, there's a message for you. He wants to speak to you. Uh, it's just a matter of listening and uh, listening intently, you know, listening with spiritual ears to see what he wants to say. But who knows? Again, maybe one day you'll, you will have, you will want to get married. You will find that special person. And um, you definitely want to be prepared for, for that day. You want to learn or have the tools to be good wives, good husbands. So um, again, I hope that it personally uh, ministers to you this message before you put that ring on his or her finger so that you'll also have a marriage that honors God. So let's open up this morning with uh, a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, you're so good and wonderful. Uh, so amazing that you've given us um, another Sunday again, Lord. Pray that you pour your spirit in this room, Lord. You will soften hearts, soften minds, Lord. Um, may your word be deeply implanted into the hearts of every single person here, Lord. Or speak to us in a mighty way, Lord. Uh, we live in a day and age, in a time right now, Lord, where just marriages are being attacked. Husbands don't know how to be husbands. Wives are having difficulty being wives. Lord, there's just so much confusion. confusion. So as we look right now to your word, Lord, I just pray that, again, we see marriages, we see our roles in our relationships, in our marriages, through your eyes and what you're trying to say here, Lord. Lord, fill us with love. Fill me with love to be able to speak in love, Lord. Bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So in this, again, in this opening section of chapter 3, Peter resumes his theme of submission that he began in the middle of chapter 2, but now applies it to a third group, wives and husbands. So let's start reading from verse 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, or chapter 3, verse 1. 
And there the word of God says, In the same way, wives, submit to your, yourselves to your own husbands, so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their, their wives live. When they observe your pure, reverent lives, don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing of gold jewelry, but rather what's inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For in the past, the holy, woman, the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to, to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have become her children when you do what is good and do not fear any intimidation. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. This passage reminds me of an old story that illustrates the principle of honor within a marriage. A drunkard husband spending the evening with his jovial companions at a tavern boasted that if he took a group of friends home with him at midnight and asked his Christian wife to get up and cook supper for them, she would do it without complaint. The crowd considered a vain boast and dared him to try it. So the, drunkard, so the drunken crowd followed him home, and he made the unreasonable demands of his wife. She obeyed, dressed, came down, and prepared a very nice supper, and served it as cheerfully as if she had been expecting them. After supper, one of the men asked her how she could be so kind when they had been so unreasonable, and when she, had, and when she, did, not approve, and when she did not approve of her conduct. Her reply was, Sir, when my husband and I were married, we were both sinners. It pleased God to call me out of that dangerous condition. My husband continues in it. I tremble for his future state. For his future state. Were he to die as he is, he would be miserable forever. I think it my duty to render his present existence as comfortable as possible. Not long, not long after, her husband was saved. Now, regardless if this story was real or fake, it's not uncommon that within the course of a marriage, a wife or a husband gets saved while the other doesn't. So what's a wife supposed to do? What's a wife to do when she loves her husband and has given her life to Jesus Christ, but her husband hasn't and doesn't appear to want to. Well, here, Peter address, uh, addressed this in the section uh, of his letter to Christian wives who had unsaved husbands, telling them how to win their mates to Christ. Then he added some important admonitions for Christian husbands. So he begins by saying, in the same way, wives, submit to your own husbands. Let me ask you, do you think he's saying that the relationship between wives and husbands is in the same way as slaves and masters? No, not at all. Peter is saying this, just as Christians were to be subject to government authorities and servants to their masters, believing wives are to submit to their husband's authority or leadership in the marriage whether he's a believer or not. God has given to man the place of headship, and it's his wife's, and it's his will that the woman should acknowledge the authority of the man. In various passages of the New Testament, we're told that the relationship between a husband and a wife is a picture between Christ and the church. For example, in Ephesians 5, and 23, it says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. 
Therefore, if it was God's intent that within marriage, the woman should obey her husband just as the church should obey Christ. Now, there are instances where a husband chooses to abdicate his role and duties as the head of the family. In those cases, it may be necessary for the wife to lead. Somebody's got to lead. Someone's got to lead the family. But it must be clear that that's not what God intended for marriage to look like. If and when the husband is ready, when he becomes a born-again Christian, or even if he says, you know what, even if he's not, and says, I'm ready to, to, to lead this family, as a Christian wife, you must be willing to step back and allow him to take on his God-given role. God made it this way because in his infinite wisdom, he knows what's best, what's, what is the best arrangement for a happy and fulfilling marriage. There's nothing degrading about submitting to authority or accepting order. If anything, it's the first step towards doing what is right in his eyes. Now notice also that Peter said wives are called to submit to their own husbands and not to all men in a general sense. Male headship is God's commanded principle for the home and for the church, not for society in general. So if a guy at work was to ask you, hey, you need to submit to me because I'm a man. And it says so in the Bible. You can just easily, don't fight him. You know, you don't argue with him. You know, you just say, no, that's not what the Bible says. Submit to my own husband, my own husband. So if an, even if another person's husband tries to, you know, give you some attitude or tries to pull this off, you can be like, no. I am to submit to my own husband. Peter then states the reason for them to submit. So that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word in the way their wives live. He's telling these Christian wives a couple things here. They don't have to keep preaching to them constantly. And your testimony is your conduct. More harm than good can be done when wives regularly badger their husbands concerning the gospel and about their need for conversion. Husband doesn't like to be badgered, doesn't like to, be, doesn't like to keep getting that stuff thrown at him. A Christian wife who tries to cram the gospel down the throat of their husbands will only drive them further from the Lord. I read about one zealous wife who used to put on sermons she found on the internet and loudly play them every time he was home so that her unsaved husband would hear the truth. Sadly, doing that only made it easy for him not to want to be home and spend whatever free time with his family, with his friends. So what Peter here is trying to emphasize is that the best way for a believing wife to influence her unbelieving husband isn't necessarily by what she says or how many times she says it. It's by what she does. A wife's character and conduct, not arguments. It's that that, that that will win the lost husband. You see, when they observe your pure, reverent lives, it reveals to them a love that's not manufactured, but rather a love that can only, that can only come from God. And it's this that will make the most impact in their lives and will influence an unsaved husband to trust Christ. Now I mentioned before that for 10 long years I backslid and I did um, a bunch of things that I'm not 
particularly proud of. But throughout that time, Robin stayed faithful. And one of the things that really irked me the most whenever we would have talks or discussions or arguments, it wasn't because she was shoving the gospel down or she was throwing things. I mean, yeah, she would encourage me to come to church. She would encourage me to you know, participate with the kids in, in certain events at the church. You know, but, and, and I would go, but it just went in one ear and out the other. I, I knew where my heart was just hard at that, at that time, and, and I just wasn't ready to surrender it yet. But, and it was hard. It was really difficult because I, I can see God doing a work in her. I can see what, there, again, she was living a life of purity and reverence, and she was being as, as respectful as, as she could be. Because there were times I really, really pushed her buttons. And she was, the, again, the one leading the family. She was doing it all. And I was just, you know, I, at that point, my drinking became more important than my family. And what I'm saying is that even, th it was hard to see her. It was hard to be around her because, um, Man, it just reminded me how ugly and dirty and sinful I was. It was like almost looking at being next to somebody clean, being somebody that was, you know, isn't as sinful and as dirty as you. And, and you, you know, again, in my own mind, in my own way, I would try to point things out to show her that she's not perfect. And, you know, and, and it was, again, it was a time of difficulty be, be, between us. But... Again, her attitude, her conduct showed me Christ. I, was, I saw Christ through her conduct and attitude. And she'll probably tell you more about it if she gets a chance. But um, again, eventually, she just kept praying for me. She didn't stop praying for me. She, you know, and, and eventually, the Lord did a work in my life. He basically took everything almost away and and I came back I came back to I surrendered my life back to the Lord but I really attribute it to again her conduct her attitude the way she was towards me um, and her prayers now let's say again you have a husband that's interfering with your Christian walk how do you handle that or what should you do well, if you're being asked to do something that would require you to disobey the Word of God, if that husband, that unbelieving husband is asking you to do something immoral, something unethical, something, again, against the Word of God, then you must disobey him and be true to the Lord. If, however, the matter involves Christian privilege rather than clear duty, she, she should be subject to her husband and forego the privilege. Let me give you an example. If an unbelieving husband were to tell you he didn't want you to go to church at all anymore, he's like, I prohibit you from ever going to church again, from opening your Bible, from hearing messages, then I'd say there's a biblical case for you to disobey him. However, if he's just asking you to skip one weekly women's group, one prayer group, and, or he's asking you to, 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 to just spend time with him, or he's asking you to, to, to miss that meeting in order to take care of something that he can't do himself, then you're not dishonoring God when you comply with your husband's request. So after mentioning that, his, that uh, wives ought to live a life noted by purity and reverence, Peter specifies how they can further develop this lifestyle in verses 3 and 4. In those verses, he tells believing wives that it's not their outward appearance that will influence their husbands, but rather the inner life the inner life of holiness and submission. Now, every culture 
has its own ideas of external beauty and uh, external beauty for women. Today, I, I think you can talk to different guys and they'll tell you what is beautiful. You can even talk to women and tell you what they think is, uh, is the ideal woman. And maybe it's being smart, funny, maybe it's being fit, um, healthy. Um, maybe again, it's getting your hair done, having, getting your hair done every single day, your nails, putting on a bunch of, you know, makeup, um, or wearing makeup 24 seven. In Peter's day, a woman's beauty is often consisted of elaborate hairstyles. The jewelry she flashed around and the kinds of expensive, um, unique clothes, maybe clothes from around the world, the, the kinds of clothes that she wore, that's what she considered as beautiful, as ideal, what men wanted. So what Peter wanted them to understand was that the adornment God desires for them wasn't external, but internal. He didn't want these wives to focus on how good they looked on the outside, but instead focus and cultivate the beauty of Christ that's in them. An echo of 1 Samuel 16:7 may be found here. Humans do not see what the Lord sees, for humans see what's visible, but the Lord sees the heart. The fact is, what a person is on the inside doesn't remain hidden, but manifests itself in the way wives behave in everyday life. In other words, what makes a woman truly beautiful is her words and her actions. What makes a wife unattractive are her words and actions. You can try to hide it through all the facade, all the makeup, the jewelry, the clothes, but eventually that stuff will manifest itself with your attitudes. So Peter encourages these women to strive for a gentle and quiet spirit because these are imperishable qualities. A gentle spirit means not insisting on one's own rights or not pushy, not selfishly assertive, not demanding of one's own way. Whereas quiet, a quiet spirit refer, refers to a calm, rational, and nonviolent behavior. These virtues emerge from what's inside the heart, the hidden person, a person who has been transformed from the inside out by God's spirit. And this kind of beauty is of greater worth in God's sight and will attract an unbelieving husband to the faith. Now, does this mean a wife shouldn't attempt to look and dress good for her husband? No, I don't believe this is what Peter is saying here. As a husband, it makes me proud when I take Robin out on a date or when we go to a formal event, and honestly, when she's looking hot, makes me want to yell, yeah, I'm with her, she's, she's with me. You know, like, you know, I'm not a big catch, I'm not, a, you know, but when she's all dolled up and dressed up, I'm like, yeah, you know, this beautiful girl's with this ugly guy, you know? And it just, you know, I, again, I get that, that, that pride, I think, yeah, I'm proud of this, you know, it makes me feel good. The good pride, not the bad pride. Um, but see, that's not what ultimately matters to me. What makes Robin beautiful, even when she's getting out of bed in the morning, she has that hair and she doesn't have any makeup on and she has that morning breath. That, you know, again, I mean, even in those moments, I think she's beautiful. I think she's physically beautiful and I think she's, I see the beauty 
that's in her. I see again, because I'm aware and I know what's the, like her inner, what uh, I know her inner qualities. She doesn't have to put on makeup or wear expensive clothes for me to see her inner beauty, that beauty. I mean, again, I appreciate it and I like it and it's awesome when she does, you know, do all that extra stuff. But, you know, I'm just as satisfied and I think she's just as beautiful when we're, you know, just walking around and she doesn't have to wear any makeup or when we're out at a formal event or she's wearing sweats and a t-shirt, you know. And, and what I, again, my point is that you don't have to, if a, if a guy has a, as a wife, I'm getting tongue-tied here, as a wife, he needs to see those qualities about you. And you don't need to impress him all the time by, again, wearing that makeup 24-7, you know, brushing your teeth before he, you wake up or he wakes up, um, you know, getting your, your nails done. And again, it's, those are nice things, yes. But again, you, what matters most ought to be your inner beauty and you should see that and appreciate appreciate that and love that about you and this is what again what Peter's saying glamour is something a person can put on and off or put on and take off it's corruptible and will fade but true true beauty that comes from the heart is always present and grows more wonderful and beautiful as the years pass. As a Christian woman who cultivates this kind of beauty, that's more precious than anything that can ever be purchased in any kind of store, that can be um, built in any kind of doctor's office. Your inner qualities, that's what's going to last. Because one day we're all going to grow old, really old. And all that stuff isn't going to matter. One day she's not going to wear makeup anymore. And one day she's just going to be walking around in sandals and shorts. And you're going to be walking around with your skinny, you know, t-shirt and big belly. And, you know, walking around in your, in your underwear and... And that's not going to matter again. What matters is you guys still love each other. You still like to be around each other. All that beauty, again, is secondary. In verses 5 and 6, Peter refers to the past lives of holy women who put their hope in God as examples of what it means to submit to their husbands with a gentle and quiet spirit. He reminds his female readers that these Old Testament women adorned themselves, not necessarily by, again, putting on all this elaborate stuff, superficial things, but by cultivating the moral and spiritual beauty of their inner life. He points out that an aspect of this beauty was dutifully submitting to their own husbands. Peter then uses Sarah, Abraham's wife, as a specific example. He states two things demonstrated her submission to Abraham. First, she obeyed Abraham even when times were difficult and even when he was wrong. And second, she honored Abraham by calling him Lord. Now, this isn't something that she went around and called him Lord every single time. This is, if you look at uh, um, Genesis, I think it was chapter 18, it was just something that she thought to herself. In her mind, in her heart, that's what she felt. That's what she called him. She called him Lord. Again, if you were to go back and read this story, you'll see that Abraham wasn't the greatest husband twice creating lies about his relationship with Sarah. But in spite of that, 
she demonstrated her hope in God by showing respect for his authority and honoring him as her husband. Women who follow her example, Peter says, have become her children when you do what is good and do not fear any intimidation. Peter's point is that a, that a Christian wife resembles Sarah when she does good by fulfilling her God-appointed role as an obedient helpmate. Moreover, she shouldn't succumb to terror even if her husband, uh, even if her unsaved husband, her unsaved mate is creating problems or difficulties for her. Now, what's being implied here is that a believing wife shouldn't fear being persecuted, oppressed, or ridiculed from their spouses because of their faith. In such cases, you're not to fear, but to maintain a strong hope in God. It's also trusting that He will ultimately vindicate you on the last day. However, this is important, there are exceptions. No wife should ever feel she must stay with a violent or abusive husband for any reason whatsoever, nor should she ever be told to do so. Anyone trying to convince you that you were called to this, that you were called to be abused, that you were called to suffer um, being yeah, physically, emotionally, mentally, verbally abused is wrong. Anybody who tells you that is, is, is wrong. Abuse isn't love. And no person ought to stay in a marriage where this is occurring. You see, your husband made a vow to protect you and to keep you safe. And if he's the one causing it, if he's the one hurting you, then he's broken his vows. He's broken his vows, and that gives you a legitimate reason to leave. I won't get into the full aspects of it, but a lot of times what is necessary, and this is what I would advocate, um, um, advocate the most, is for there to be a complete separation and allow that separation to occur until his life changes until he's ready to come back to Christ see what he's done wrong apologize and basically beg you to come back you know and if he doesn't you know again you, I would suggest, again, seeking counsel in those kind of situations. If this is you, you need to talk to somebody. Talk to somebody before it's too late. You didn't take your husband's hand in marriage so that he can take your life from you. So if you can go, leave. You know, if you're listening, watching, you can talk, to, call, call the church. You know, if you know somebody here, you can call me and talk, or call Robin. You know, we'll find resources to help. But this is, a, this is a big issue. This was an issue back then, and this is an issue now. Too many, for too many stories, things like that happening in a so-called Christian home. And pastors or leaders saying, yeah, you know what? You should just continue to stay with him. Yeah. I don't see it that way. Abuse is wrong. Hurting anyone in that sense is, is wrong. And now again, now I'll get to the guys. So having addressed the wives of unbelieving husbands, Peter now dedicates verse 7, one verse only, one verse, to address Christian husbands. Why do you think Peter devoted more space to instructing the wives and to the husbands? 
because it's the Christian wives who are experiencing a whole new situation and were in need of guidance. In general, women were kept down in the Roman Empire and their new freedom in Christ created new problems and challenges. Furthermore, many of them had unsaved husbands and needed extra encouragement and needed wisdom. So as he wrote to these husbands, he reminds them of three things they must do to live honorably and godly lives in their marriages. He first reminds them to live with your wives in an understanding way. A godly husband doesn't merely share a house, but he truly lives with her by making it an effort to be with her and to provide for her. He's going to want to be at home. She's not going to be looking forward to want to be out and about. Since I came back to the Lord, I've learned how amazing it is to be at home now. I don't have to be out every, with the guys, you know, every weekend. I don't have to bring my family along and have them stay up till two, three o'clock in the morning until I was, till all the drinks were gone. Oh, now I just enjoy getting off of work and just being with them. When they come home from school, on the weekends, I just enjoy hanging out with them. Yeah, I love my little naps here and there, you know. And again, my kids know that I have a weird schedule. But, you know, Anthony knows that when I see him, I'm like, hey, Anthony, what's up? You know, I want to know what's, what's happening, you know, with him. And I'm always telling Robin, hey, come and just talk to me, you know, for a bit. I'm, you know, let me, as I'm eat, down there eating dinner by myself sometimes, I'm like, come and just talk to me for a minute, you know. I just enjoy their company. I really, really do. Whereas before, I, it wasn't, I took, took advantage or I took that for granted. Again, he, the husband, recognizes the great point Paul taught about marriage in Ephesians 5.28 that husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. A Christian husband lives with his wife in an understanding way by knowing her, by knowing her moods, feelings, her needs, her fears, her hopes. It's understanding her needs by listening to her with our hearts and sharing meaningful conversations with her. Not like, hey, did you hear the Cowboys won? You know, it's not, you know, it's not those kind of things. It's actually sitting down and listening to what's going on with her, what she's feeling. You know, even if she's having a bad day and it's just hearing her out. One thing, biggest thing I learned in my marriage is that a lot of times guys don't even have to offer advice. They just want to, just have to listen. Guys have to just learn to listen, not just offer advice. And a lot of times that's what women want, is just to be heard. So yeah, it's just listening to your wives. A husband who lives with this kind of understanding and applies it, shows how much he respects her and will greatly enrich his marriage, will greatly enrich that marriage relationship. Nevertheless, we must know, we must remember that this can only be gained when you regularly study God's word and spend uninterrupted quality time together as husband and wife. It's saying, hey, let's, if you're able to, let's leave the kids with the parents and let's just get away for a weekend. Or let's, even if that's not possible, let's, while they're in school, let's go take a walk together. Let me see if I can take some 
time off of work, so maybe go in late or, or leave early and just spend time. And I'm not, again, talking about physical time. I'm just, I'm talking about quality time, just hanging out. She'll appreciate that and your marriage will, will grow, grow stronger. Secondly, he says, as with the weaker part, as as with a weaker partner. Here, Peter is in no way suggesting that women are intellectually, emotionally, morally, or spiritually weaker than men. Such a view would suggest that men are actually better Christians than women, which isn't taught anywhere in the Bible, nor is it evident in history. I know a lot of great women who are stronger, who have been stronger, uh, and has been smarter than me, have been emotionally stronger than me, morally stronger, spiritually stronger. So that's not the case here. Again, uh, what makes logical sense is that Peter would be referring to the fact that in general, women are biologically weaker in physical strength. Now, there are cases where, this, or there are times where this isn't always the case. I'm sure there's women out there who can probably bench press more than I can. You know, um, there's probably women out there that can run faster than me. You know, but I'm just saying in general, men have more muscle mass than women. And I hope you don't get offended by that. Um, but if you don't believe me, just look, up, look it up. Science. It's biology, basic biology. If this is what he's speaking of, then Peter is suggesting that we men not take advantage of the fact that we're stronger by trying to overpower or even using that strength to intimidate our wives. It's not going up to them and saying, what, what are you going to do? You know, that is intimidating for what can be intimidating for a woman. You know, it's when he tries to outmatch you when it comes to the strength, to, to strength so that he can make himself look better, to feel better. Yeah, that's, that's wrong. However, then there's another suggestion. The context also shows that women are weaker in, ter in terms of authority in the marriage. If this is what Peter is referring to, if this is what he means, then Peter is directing husbands not to misuse the authority that God gave us for our own selfish needs. It's not saying you need to obey me, you need to submit to my authority because I'm your husband and this is what I want you to do. It's not misusing that. My boss ever told me anything like that, I'd be like, yeah, I'm out of here, you know? Don't allow, again, as husbands, don't misuse that authority that God gave you. And thirdly, he reminds believing husbands to respect their wives by showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life. A godly husband realizes that his spouse is not only his wife, but she's also his sister in Christ. And in a sense, she is in every way, and in this sense, she is in every way his equal. Therefore, as men, we should honor and, we, and respect our wives. And by extension, all women, all believing women, because they share the same destiny in God's eternal kingdom. They're our sister in Christ. And again, in God's eyes, in the heavenly perspective, he sees us all the, the same, nor male, nor female. Slave, free, 
You know, he sees us all the same as his children. Peter then ends his verse by telling husbands the reason they ought to treat their wives with love, respect, and honor so that your prayers will not be hindered. I was having a conversation about this with Robin and you know, it, it completely, this verse completely blows us away. I'll explain in just a minute why. It says in James 5.16, the prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. So any husband who considers themselves a good Christian, a godly Christian, a believing Christian, should be aware that when the power of your prayer, that your powers of your prayers are weakened and may not be answered if you're not caring for the woman that God has given you to be your wife. They'll be hindered. That's, that's nuts. That's what, we, that's what I rely on. Again, I don't know about you, but there's nothing I rely on more to get me through the day, through my marriage, and through every single situation than prayer. No Christian husband, husband should presume to think that any spiritual good will be accomplished by his life without, effective, without the effective ministry of prayer. And no husband may expect an effective prayer life unless he lives with his wife in an understanding way and showing her honor to take the time to develop and maintain a good marriage is God's will. It's serving God. It's a spiritual activity pleasing in His sight. I sincerely hope that this message, man, it, it, it spoke to you. Spoke to you men and women in a powerful way. Whether, you're, again, you're single or you're married. God honors created marriage and He honors it. And whatever he honors, we should honor as well. Wives, as hard as it is, as difficult as it is, we have to be willing to submit to our husbands and let them take on that leadership role. And husbands, love your wives. Love them. Treat them right. Treat them, treat them, with, treat them with respect. Honor them. This is pleasing in God's sight. Marriage is a wonderful thing. No one should ever be scared of it. No one should ever be intimidated by it. It's just a matter again. If you, if you don't think you can do it, or you having, you know, again, these concepts are, are hard for you to really grasp. He'll show them to you. He will, he will reveal again what he's meaning, what he's trying to say. But it's, again, it's a matter of prayer and getting into his word and, and, and seeking him out in those kind of situations, especially before you get married. You know, it's very easy for men and women to say, well, I'm going to marry the first person that falls in love with me or that treats me right. It's more than that. You know, we're not to be, first of all, we're not to be unequally yoked best thing to do is to marry someone who has a heart for the Lord, that is in love with the Lord, that loves the Lord more than you. And it is true and genuine. And the only way you can find that out is to take your time. Be best friends. Something I've found out on my kids and other couples is just that are dating. Make her your best friend first. Know what makes her tick. Talk to her. You know, share with her. Pray with her. Spend time to know what's really inside of her. And women, again, girls that are maybe have that potential guy in mind, see how he acts towards kids, towards animals, towards, you know, I mean, pay attention. I mean, I know girls are good at that. 
paying attention to details, you know. And it's hard. It's hard, especially in that when you're in that honeymoon stage or you're in the, the, that enlightened stage. You know, we're just thinking, not thinking straight. But it's important. It's so important that you get to know that person before you put on that ring on that person. Because once you're married to them, it's, you got to put it through your mind that it's for life. You got to see it that way. You got to see it that it's for life. It isn't, oh, until he, until I'm no longer in love with him. Until he no longer does the dishes. <laughs> until she no longer puts on makeup. You know, it's forever. That's the way God created it to be. Let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, um, we come before you again and to thank you for your word. Thank you for this message. Those of us that are married, we thank you for our wives. We thank you for our husbands. Yes, Lord, it's hard sometimes. And it's even harder when our flesh gets in the way, when our pride gets in the, in the way. When sometimes we get tempted to look elsewhere, to find satisfaction in other places and other people. Lord, help us to just always maintain our focus, first of all, on you. We want to, we need to fall in love with you completely, Lord, first. We need to see ourselves as you see us. And then, Lord, we'll be able to, to know what it really means, what it really is, what it really means to love others. So strengthen every marriage that's here, Lord. May they come together, talk to each other, spend quality time together. And I pray for those that are single, aren't married, but are looking to get married one day, Lord, that again you show them what, what their role is as, hus as future husbands, and wives. And they may see that and just see it as a privilege, Lord. See it as a, a, a something to, of obedience to you, Lord. Bless us next time of fellowship, Lord. We love you and praise you and honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.